0: AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for February 3rd, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, I'm joined by Stan Nurulov. Stan, how's it going?
1: Pretty good, Matt, thank you.
0: And uh, Jim Clausing online. Jim, how's it going?
1: I'm getting stronger every
2: day.
0: <laughs> that one doesn't uh, kill you, only makes you stronger. I'm Matt Kaiser, and uh, let's, let's kick off the day's uh, topics. So Jim, um, another day on the internet, and yet another internet of things device to worry about. Can you tell us a little bit more about it, please?
2: Yeah, this article uh, showed up in the register yesterday, um, and it's, uh, there's a, apparently a Bulgarian researcher who found a, a vulnerability in um, certain builds of Zycel's Zynos firmware. It's the, the OS that runs on a, a variety of um, home routers, from TP-Link, ZTE, and D-Link, and the issue with this one is that the supposed internal web server for administration is exposed to the internet again. I mean, we've seen this, we've seen these kind of vulnerabilities any number of times in the past, and the, the issue with this one is it has been made available publicly, so the exploit is out there. Um, I don't believe that the patch is out there yet, uh, so, um, you know, w- there are a number of exposed devices out there. Uh, one of the things that you can do w- if you exploit this is, you know, to reset DNS, you know, primary DNS servers. Um, that's probably one of the big ways of, of the bad guys would exploit this, you know, is to to point things to their own DNS servers so that they can redirect, uh, you know, and man-in-the-middle type attacks against the home users. So um, uh, we'll keep an eye on this, and if we, as soon as we hear that the the updates are available, folks running these these routers, particularly the D-Link DSL 2740R. Is known to be vulnerable to this, so if you're running those and possibly other you know, uh, other home routers that run uh, the Zynos firmware, um, keep your eyes open, and you'll want to do a firmware update as soon as it's available.
0: Now, Jim, the um, what you just described there—it sounds like you're able to make um requests to that that admin interface does it is it unauthenticated do you still yep. have stop no to, it's uh, absolutely completely you,
2: unauthenticated simple. you can you can change the configuration uh, without authentication
0: so one HTTP request and and it's done basically it's what you're telling me yep geez uh, we, we, we continue to see devices like this on the internet right. and it's it's kind of scary that um, you would think that even over the, the brief amount of time that we've seen Internet of Things devices, or even, even the longer period of time that we've seen home routers being used with a web interface for easy um, control, right. that this would have been fixed. And this is, this is kind of a, an old school web bug, web uh, application vulnerability. So I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but a small part of me wishes I could be.
2: Yeah, uh, that, yeah. I know yeah. what you mean.
0: <laughs> All right, well, thank you, Jim. Next story we have is an article on theweek.com, and you, you're probably used to seeing all sorts of, of lists online. You know, top five this, top ten one of these. Now this is an interesting one: the seven biggest lies you've been told about hacking. From a standpoint of you know, as an AT&T analyst, I feel like a lot of these are, are fairly well known. But I think as a for a layperson, you probably you may or may not know some of these. And there's a there's a good number, the seven of them. Um, I'm only going to cover a few of them because the list sort of goes into depth on each one, but I think there's a couple really interesting ones that I think most people should have clarified. Number one, uh, taking down a site is not the same as hacking that site.
1: That's a good point, Matt. There's a lot of times when uh, just the information in the back end is still safe and secure, just the HTML or something has been modified. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it it looks as if the site has been taken down, but really the information has not been exposed to the hackers. way I guess to achieve that would be like through a DDoS attack or Mm -hmm. something similar. So it appears like you can't get to the site and uh, the hackers quote-unquote will claim victory, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, at the end of the day information has not really been breached. Yep,
0: That's that's a very good point. Um, I mean hacking a site is typically relates to finding a vulnerability. There may be no vulnerability in the site. You could find a very well built, very well constructed and secure site and still have ways of taking it down. Um, another possibility is that the site was taken down through legal means, you know. Maybe you had the, the cooperation of law enforcement and registrars to take out the domain, or to, to the, of the hosting service to take out the, the content that was hosted on the site and it's been taken down that way. That doesn't mean that law enforcement necessarily used hacking techniques to take it down. They had completely legal and technical processes to do so. Right. Um, another interesting point that they made is a hijacked Twitter account is also not the same as having a company be hacked. We saw this recently with U.S. CENTCOM, where ISIS-related hackers you know, hijacked their account, posted messages. I think it was their Twitter accounts and maybe Instagram or one of the other uh, services. And I think that's the point here, is that these are third-party services. Right. These are not under the control of U.S. CENTCOM, just the same way that your, your Twitter account is not maintained and owned by, well, yes, you post to it. But you don't host the servers. You don't you know, maintain right. the password controls on it. It's, it's a third-party service. So And, and
1: sometimes they're even outsourced yet yeah, to a third PR-type firm mm-hmm. where it's totally under the control of the other organization. Yeah. And even some of the password management there is up to that organization. So it, uh, the danger there, of course, is it can seem like you've been taken. It can make some sort of a political point. So definitely something to be aware of there. Uh, But it's not, uh, usually those systems are completely separated. So the Twitter or the Instagram, let's say, is not connected to the back-end data. Uh, So it might sound like you've hacked someone. You can have some political points there. But the truth is, the data is really still safe. Um, It's just almost like a publicity stunt.
0: Now, we, we see the same sort of things when a device is hacked. For example, if you have, like, a, an Internet of Things home device, and I think around Black Hat we usually get a few of these, and they say, company name X has been hacked. When they refer to the device, they're not referring to the company's backend servers. They're not referring to the, the business side of the, of, right. you know. It's Or
1: it could even just be a device that that company deploys or something like that, not even made by them or anything
0: like that. Sure. Yeah. It, it grabs headlines, but it's not accurate. Right. There's a couple interesting more points on the, the list. I encourage you all to go check them out. One more that I wanted to bring up was that uh, hacking... The, the myth is that hacking takes skill and very high-tech software. Now, these days, uh, I think we've sort of found that that's not, no longer the case. It's a matter of paying a little bit of money and getting access to uh, remote, con- remote access Trojan or the latest version of Zeus, or even as simple as going to uh, a code-sharing site. Um, some of these things are actually open source. Some of them have been developed by researchers, um, security analysts, as a proof of concept, and they get repurposed for a crime, which is unfortunate, but right. people will do it yeah well and
2: I'm not I'm not sure that it's ever necessarily required all that much skill or high-tech software you know the people are always the weakest link in mm. in the whole thing and you know social engineering has been around for decades and we you know we see all that kind of you know social engineering attacks to get passwords or to get You know, proprietary data, and that doesn't—that takes understanding people, but that doesn't take, you know, particular skill or or software.
0: That's true. We we still see cases like when Syrian Electronic Army manages to convince uh, a DNS registrar to repoint some domains for them to their own website. That's a form of hacking, but it's really more social engineering than anything else. We also still see social engineering playing a large part in phishing campaigns where the real hook is to get someone to download something they normally wouldn't by pretending to be somebody that they're not, or having a false sense of urgency, pressuring someone to take an action that they normally wouldn't take. So it's a a great list. I I recommend everybody go take a look at it, and uh, maybe you'll learn something new, and maybe you're uh, super security savvy, and you're not gonna learn a thing, but either way, I think it's a good read. So things that we ought to have to patch. On the top of that list, my computer. At the bottom of that list, though, I would have thought my car, but apparently not. Uh,
1: That's right, Matt. Uh, So a couple of sources are reporting on the internet that uh, BMW just issued a patch for uh, their car. And most people should have gotten it over the air, so to speak. Maybe if your car was in the garage or something, you'll probably should refer to your owner's manual and see how to apply the patch or go to the dealer or something like that. But it's an interesting situation, right? We're talking about internet of things. And one of those things is actually your car, the car of the future. Now, kudos of course to BMW for making sure they jump on this and already released a patch to make sure that uh, the this, I guess, vulnerability has been uh, closed off. Of course, this was never really um, taken advantage of by anybody. I think it was a group of researchers that were working with the company. Uh, and basically what they found out is that there's a, uh, like a mobile communications mechanism with the car basically using cellular data and goes to BMW servers. If you're able to get into the middle of that communications with a man in the middle attack, you'd be able to uh, basically fool the car to do certain things uh, that supposedly you could only do from your iPhone. And one of the reasons that could be is because uh, they were using HTTP protocol, uh, so which is a uh, clear text protocol and doesn't uh, have the client-side authentication or doesn't allow you to have that client-side authentication like SSL does. Uh, So part of the patch was, of course, to move to SSL HTTP over SSL, and make sure that the car knows what the proper certificate for uh, BMW servers is and make sure it authenticates it before it tries to uh, allow any of the functionality to, let's say, open doors or uh, lower windows. Uh, so pretty interesting. Um, I know that uh, it's something that uh, is definitely a topic of interest for me. When I get a car, I always play around with the technology, see what I can do. Um, so this one, this article kind of I was dear to my heart
0: does it sound like something that might be able to I mean I'm trying to get a feel for the, the the criticality of the bug it sounds like you can use it to open doors and do things while the car is not running and does it control other systems like the brake system what's the Those
1: systems should have been uh, separate okay. so I think it's one of those features where let's say you forgot where you parked your car or something like that and you use your uh, iPhone to find it or uh, sound the alarm so instead of using your key fob you use your personal phone to do some of that. And I guess the way that works is the car is always connected to the, uh, to the servers at the company or sends out some sort of a beacon and allows that functionality. Uh, but the problem was that I think it was unauthenticated, so the car didn't verify that it was really talking to BMW servers. Um, but that's all been fixed now.
0: OK. It's, it's good that they do have a patch process. I mean, I can think of a number of devices that, you know, as they get older, you're not going to see any patches, and the security vulnerabilities will stay there forever. Um, This is a good precedent to set, is to have some sort of management of patches for cars.
1: right? And I think that a lot of cars in the future are going to move to this model of being connected and uh, it has a lot of functionality and I just hope that uh, other manufacturers as they do this, uh, they take the lessons learned from other manufacturers and from the Internet of Things, right? From anything that we've seen, we kind of hope that they apply that to their discipline. Uh, to engineer a secure product, not only a functional one or a convenient one. Right,
2: because one of the things that Brian's always saying, you know, about the Internet of Insecure Things is, you know, the issue with the devices that don't have any sort of an automatic uh, patch process, you know, just like the home routers we were just talking about, you know, you're going to, the owner is going to have to know that they've got a a device that's potentially impacted. They're going to have to go out and get the firmware update and apply it themselves. So, you know, with with more sophisticated devices, we really need an automatic patching process like like apparently is the case here. Yep,
0: totally agree. Next up, Jim, um, we have a little bit of a discussion on the, it's, it's related to the recent glibc bug and finding what libraries are actually using on your server.
2: Right, we we talked about the, the ghost vulnerability last week in in the GNU libc implementation, and uh, Johannes Ulrich uh, posted something today over on the Internet Storm Center, useful for for admins if they want to figure out is anything on my system, you know, using the vulnerable library. The one point is the techniques that Johannes mentions here only show you. If you're using a particular shared library, if you've statically compiled the library in, and if you potentially then you know, strip out the symbols, uh, and you may not, you, you may have a much harder time figuring out. But anyway, um, and and probably most Unix and Linux admins understand this. But the first utility is ldd. You run that against a binary, and it'll show you which dynamic libraries it was linked against. Um, and you know it will then, you know, if, if, it's, if the library's been updated, then if you restart the, the process, then it'll run with the new one. Um, the interesting trick that he had in here that I uh, hadn't really thought about was the LSOF trick to see what, what processes are running that are potentially linked against outdated versions. You know, once you've applied the update, um, you know which processes do you need to restart if you didn't reboot the whole thing. So he has got an LSOF trick in here that is use is useful for seeing you know which uh, additional processes you may need to kill and restart. But basically, if you're if you've done an update like this. Your best bet is to reboot the system, then everything restarts clean. But again, this this only applies to uh, binaries that are linked against the shared libraries. It doesn't handle the binaries that are statically compiled with these. And those, you're at the mercy of of whoever did the compiling to offer an update. But I, I, I thought it was an interesting reminder for those of us who... Uh, May have forgotten some of this, or who haven't been Unix or Linux admins for very long, of how we can go about finding out, you know, what what binaries are linked against what shared libraries.
0: Yeah, thanks, Jim. Um, I, I really think this is going to be a useful bit of advice for, for those of us who are out there on the front lines doing, you know, patching and and just sort of for the general knowledge of of how you can determine what it is that's actually operating on a, a Unix system. Um, now, nothing really replaces good um, patch management, version management, and, and change management, which would hopefully, if you were admitting a system, give you this information already. You, know, you wouldn't have to go and run this and find out, oh, I'm running these particular versions. But in the case that you don't have that information, I know smaller to medium-sized businesses probably don't have the infrastructure put together to track that sort of thing. This is a great way to check as well. Um, I don't know that we actually have a means of looking for that statically compiled Code. I think this is a, this will get you part way, if not most of the way. Right. Uh, but I think in in that case, I don't know. I, I feel like the the best way you're going to find out is is not to be digging through all of your binaries, looking for the particular patterns that you know are, are, are indicative of a certain version of your glibc libraries, but rather to go and ask everyone who's written the software that you depend on. Hey, are you are you statically compiling? Do we have to worry about this?
2: Yeah, but I I, I think this is also useful because unless you've got an automated thing that keeps track of it in some big database there are so many binaries on you know on Mm -hmm. a given Linux or Unix system that are compiled and linked against shared libraries that you know there's no way that I'm going to remember everything that's that's linked against a particular library so you know you've got the tools that if it you know if you need to you can go out and and, you know script it to to run this kind of a check against it
0: yep fair enough thanks jim so we're moving on to the internet weather and got a couple interesting anomalies for this week i'd like to share with you uh first off is the number of scan flows on port 5353 udp which is multicast dns uh, you can see here that there's a very it's almost you know regimented scanning very intense peaks of, of scans i would say about seven to eight days apart it's interesting. Uh, it's all from a known, legitimate scanning source—an uh, organization that does sort of scans and, and surveys of the internet. I don't think it has to do with any particular vulnerability, but uh, it is interesting to see that they've got this sort of down on a clockwork. So it's probably—I'm going to make a bit of a guess here—that I think that in the rest of the space between those, you've got a number of other ports being scanned as well. Didn't do the research on that, but I feel like if this this intensive a scanning doesn't make sense to wait that long and knowing their their mission I feel like this is a tiny slice of a bigger picture uh, the next um, one up is port 993 TCP which is IMAP s secure IMAP you can see from the graph that we have a, a certain a certain uh, increase in the duration of these scans around 124 and you can see a couple of peaks with that same uh, that t- same time slice uh, at a, a large peak I'm going to say around uh, 131. Uh, that one's significant. This is primarily from a U.S. university, again, with a, a mandate to do some sort of internet survey w- research. Uh, I don't think it's anything particularly to worry about from a security standpoint, and again, no known vulnerabilities at this point, but simply someone's trying to put together a picture of what servers are running what services. Um, for their own knowledge, for what purpose? One can only speculate. Um, scan flows on port ten thousand and one TCP. Now, this one is related to a vulnerability. Recently, there was a known vulner- there was a vulnerability released um, for automated tank gauges for a particular provider, listening on port ten thousand one. These automated tank gauges are devices that are, they're basically smart gas pumps at you know a convenience store or a gas station. Uh, this allows you to monitor them. It's sort of uh, the Internet of, of Things for for gas stations. Yeah, and- one
2: thing we should point out this. The the blog post was done by H.D. Moore, who will be a guest here on the show uh, in a couple of weeks, so we can actually ask him a little bit more about his research on that. But I I did want to mention that he will be
0: on the show in a couple of weeks. That's a good point, and I'm looking forward to that episode very much. Bit of a fanboy. (laughs) Um, You can see that there was a a spike back in January for this same port, but that was, I think it's unrelated because the, the data was actually released Around, I'm going to say, the 22nd, you can see certain uh, spikes here for what I'd say is preliminary scanning. And then you see a large block starting on the 30th, which is someone's dedicated effort to scan that whole, I've I've probably just scanned most of the IP space. Again, it's it's a a small number of sources, large number of scans. I am puzzled a bit as to what that large spike was around uh, early January. There are other services running on these ports as well. I think the Ubiquity Wi-Fi access point system uses that for a sort of a, a discovery protocol. But again, gotta speculate in this case. And Jim, if you wouldn't mind going through the uh, the most probed ports and most SIPS probing, please. Yep. Yep. So this week, really not
2: not anything particularly new. Our top two ports are you know the same as. As last week, and uh, the rest of them kind of shuffled around. TCP 135 is still the most probed port, followed by the 9064 TCP, SSDP 1900 UDP, SSH, DNS, 445 TCP, which is the, a lot of still a lot of configure out there. 1433, which is Microsoft SQL Server. 8080 TCP, which is usually proxies or things like Tomcat, port 110 POP3, which first appeared last week and uh, is dropped down to 10th on the list this week.
0: It's interesting to note that the the other portion, the, the other high ports that we've noticed here, is a significant portion of the graph this week. I'm not sure what to say about that conclusively. It's maybe that the overall volume of scanning on the internet potentially has increased, and you have a lot more one-offs that are being scanned. You have any thoughts on that?
2: There are about 1,300 ports that that constitute the other this week. Uh, last week it was about 1,100. So there, we've seen scanning on a few more ports. The other is you know, it is a significant chunk this week. It's about, you know, it's in excess of 40% there, not quite 50%. We've had weeks where it was this bad. We've had weeks where it was smaller, where the top 10 were just a bigger chunk of things. I'm not sure I'd read too much into that at this point.
0: All right. Always a viable answer.
2: And then our, our most sources doing the probing Uh, Again, no change at all in the top 6 this week, Uh, 7 and 8 flip-flopped, 9 stayed the same. The one that did pop into the top 10 this week at number 10 was port 3159 UDP. That's a port I think we've mentioned in the past and we still really don't know what it is that the, the bad guys are looking for on this particular one. TCP 23 Telnet password guessing is at the top of, of the list for most sources probing this week at almost almost a quarter of the probing. And then 445 the 27015 UDP is gaming. Uh, the 6881 UDP and TCP are BitTorrent. We've discussed that in the past. 1900 UDP is SSDP. And then, as I said, this 3159 UDP. I don't, do, you, do you remember what, what we kind of thought was most prevalent there. We still, as I said, we don't know what exactly they're looking for here, but Matt, do you remember what that was?
0: I believe this was related, the only, the only name we could come up with it on the internet was Navega Web Tarification, And uh, Web being uh, some sort of service provider and Tarification roughly translating to, to billing or payment. So um, I'm not sure what the actual service is, but we have seen it before. And we continue to be very interested in it. So if any of our viewers do have any more information about it, we'd love to hear about it.
2: Yeah. So we, it's it's one that we really don't know exactly what's going on here. We continue to keep an eye on
0: it. But. Uh. All right. Thank you, Jim. That's our show for today. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack@list.att.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Uh, The ThreatTrack video is also available at att.com slash ThreatTrack and on the ATT Tech channel on YouTube. There's an audio version available on iTunes. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Stan. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Jim. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. Views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.